Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. This episode is supported by the Auto A Malm Foundation. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito from the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm excited today to be joined by two scholars who are part of the ORE, an interdisciplinary project funded by the European Research Council that studies gaming disorder. Dr. Eveli Matti Karhulahti is the project's principal investigator and is an interdisciplinary senior researcher of play, games, and the philosophy of science at the University of Uveskula here in Finland. Dr. Ye Won Jin is a postdoctoral researcher at Uveskula and focuses on South Korea as part of the project. She is also currently a visiting professor at Yonsei University in Korea and is the principal researcher at the Game and Science Institute. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I had planned to start with a question that seemed rather simple, which was, what is gaming disorder? But in learning about your project, the ORE, which stands for the Ontological Reconstruction of Gaming Disorder, I realized it's a very difficult question to answer. And as is clear from the name, it's really at the core of your five-year research project, which, by the way, began in 2022, so just last year. So perhaps we can start with whether or not there is an official clinical diagnosis for gaming disorder. Order. Good question. I like this question. It's always fun to answer because the history is so long. And as a brief, quick reply, we can say, indeed, starting from last year, 22, the ICD-11, International Classification of Diseases, has included uh, gaming in this category called disorders due to addictive behaviors with gambling. So there's just two items in that category. And gaming, gambling, two types of playing games are under that. There's another manual, the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, mental disorders, which has it in the appendix, so it's not diagnosable in the U.S. Yeah, that's a brief reply to that uh, sort of formal part of that concept. Yeah, I just want to add that in Korea's case, it's not yet an official diagnosis because um, I think ICD-11 is recommended, but every country has a different way of dealing with if they're going to include that to their local standard classification of diseases. So Korean standards classification of diseases has not yet decided to include gaming disorder as an official diagnosis. And there's civil government cooperation body actively discussing if we want to include this to the KCD and make it official disease in Korea. I see. Thank you so much for that clarification. So KCD, the Korean Classification of Diseases, is that right? Korean Standard Classification of Diseases. I see. And then so the International Classification of Diseases is by the World Health Organization. And then the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that's the American Psychiatric Association. Is that right? Yes, correct. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much for that clarification. So there is an international classification of diseases, but each country is free to include their own list of diseases in their national classifications. You mentioned, Mati, that in this disorder due to addictive behaviors, there were included gambling and gaming as two separate subsets, if I'm understanding you correctly. But I imagine that because there's also online gaming, like online poker, that there are some behaviors that kind of overlap in these two categories. 
Right. So there's actually a very interesting history. Maybe I'll just briefly recap that behind this bold concept. So sort of the phenomenon has been studied since the early 80s. People, of course, didn't have these terms at the time. So people were talking about play addiction, computer addiction, video game addiction. And sort of an important year was 1998 when a researcher called Kimberly Young published monograph and a paper, a very influential paper called Internet Addiction. And in this paper picked up the criteria of gamma gambling disorder or problematic gambling from the manual that it was at the time used, DSM-4. And she basically replaced the term gambling with internet and found out that a lot of people, when we use these same criteria, could be classified as having problems with internet. And of course, in the late 90s, internet was not what it is today. There are many ways in which we use internet. And I think she found things like reading too much news, being too much time in chat rooms, uh, using pornographic sites, and then like gaming was one of these things that people were overusing according to her criteria. And this sort of spawned that research program on trying to understand what is this internet addiction. And I think um, China was the first one to officially take that into clinical practice in 2008, and they still called it internet addiction. But nowadays, in the last 10 years, we've sort of forgotten that history because starting from 2013, when DSM took this concept into the manual and the appendix, as we spoke earlier they picked up specifically gaming out of them and excluded all those other internet activities. I see. What do you think about excluding all those other activities? Because you mentioned social networking sites and, and pornography, and I imagine that neither of these things have diminished in the past 10 or 15 years. Why do you think that gaming was specified here? That's a really, really good question. And I think there's no clear answer to this. If you ask me personally, I would say people can develop all kinds of problematic relationships with all kinds of activities and objects and substances. So technically speaking, I think, as you said, they're not gone away. They're still here. Yeah. So I think the main answer to that is gaming is very close to gambling. So in both cases, we have games, the other ones uh, with money and the other one without. So it was sort of easy to sneak it in next to gambling. Uh, disorder. And of course, it was a very big change after that, since gaming became sort of the first cultural and technological product that got its own diagnostic categories. Uh, gambling, of course, a lot of gambling happens in electronic and online spaces as well, but there's also a lot of analog gambling and so on. So it's kind of um, interesting that computer games were picked up in this context. Of course, you'd always add in these kinds of cases that uh, there's a lot of money involved in gaming as well. So people buy skins and people buy loot boxes. And it's sort of a gray area at the moment that how do we deal with these kinds of problems that involve money, which are kind of not gambling, but not gaming either. Like if you read those diagnostic criteria from the ICD, they don't speak about money at all. So that's sort of one of those ongoing research topics right now. But I would say that's sort of the main, main reason. Great. Thank you. I'm very glad you brought up the issue of money involved in these games because it does have such real life consequences. In this diagnosis, which I understand is still debated, are only certain types of video or computer games considered? So we're not limited to any specific type. The only exclusion criteria we have is those gambling activities, which are specifically kept separate. Of course, there are many different types of gaming. That's one of those very interesting questions to study. That how do different types of games and game components and their features sort of fit into people's different lives? And we specifically try to investigate those sort of game design elements. There really is such a vast array of different types of games, some that are really 
be about fostering social networks with friends virtually and with real life and virtual friends and others that are completely solitary? And do you attempt to have a taxonomy to categorize such games? I imagine this is this can be very difficult. Yes. So one of the main goals in our principal goal is indeed to build a taxonomy. So just like in taxonomies in biology, for instance, operate in such a way that you start from the top and then you go down and try to understand and build a system where you can identify different types. And for instance, you can start from the top in the biological tradition by splitting plants from animals and mushrooms. And then you pick one of these branches like animals, then you can split that again into reptiles and mammals and birds and fishes. And then if you pick mammals, you can again find different types of mammals like elephants and people and so on and so on. And what we try to do is sort of the same thing with what we call intensive gaming. So we use the word intensive gaming to describe these very multi-year, several hours per day types of engagements that people have with games. And when we start from that top, we can start using things like people's well-being as the top category, try to understand how people who have very good well-being are different from those who don't. And then we start going down. Okay, what are those differences in the games that people play who have lower well-being or different kinds of problems? And we can keep on splitting and splitting until we have a better understanding instead of just saying that people have gaming disorder or not, rather we can and say, well, it's this specific branch of the taxonomy that we're looking at, and perhaps we can explain it through those components that are prevalent in this kind of setting. I really appreciate that you said you don't want to just say this person has a gaming disorder or not. I understand that your project seeks to distinguish, I'm taking this from your from your uh, website, distinguish real problems from media panics by understanding what gaming disorder really is. And this attempt to call out media sensationalism for what it is, is quite important and commendable. Your current project looks specifically at players in Finland, Slovakia, and South Korea. What is the reasoning behind having these three countries that you're specifically focused on? So our original idea was basically to have diversity. So Slovakia and Finland, very different countries in Europe and in Korea, where gaming is very often in the discourse, we hear Korea being called as the Mecca of gaming. And uh, maybe Yevon can elaborate on that soon. But indeed, we wanted to have that diversity and expand from that. So we are currently expanding also to many other countries like China and India and so on. Maybe Gavon can elaborate on sort of this context a bit more. Yeah, so the idea is that gaming can be seen as a phenomenon influenced by like environmental and cultural factors. So the reason the adolescents engage in gaming in Korea could be very much different from the adolescents in Finland play games or they also play different types of the games. And they're also in a very different social environment where parents or their friends think about games. If we want to understand if the gaming disorder is something universal, what would be the factors that affect those, their behaviors? Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of South Korea, and I don't, I feel like I'm going to feed into the media sensationalism. So I'm going to introduce this with a caveat. But I remember, as I, I'm sure you both do, there were two, at least two very widely reported cases. I just want to confirm it was in 2005 and another in 2010, where first an adult man died from an extended period of gaming. He passed away, I believe, from exhaustion and heart failure. And 
mentioned another tragic story of a young child who died due to neglect by the parents who were so immersed in an online game. And these both happened to happen in South Korea. And when it was reported, it was clear that, of course, these were tragic but very unique circumstances. And it was in the 2000s. And so maybe even more people play games now. But even at the time, obviously, many, many people were playing online games, games on their phones. And not everyone, of course, had the issue of becoming addicted to these games. But I just remember those two cases very clearly. But I imagine in South Korea that there must have been political movements to try to address this issue. Has anything come of these tragedies? Is there any sort of regulation or anything that happened since then? We've gone through many trials of policies. And from the cases that you've mentioned, I think what was missing was that other components of those people's lives were neglected and they've only related that to gaming. So it could have been the parents having some sort of depression, but it could also be something else. And the Korean media has been kind of like demonizing gaming for many of the tragic, violent or bad things. But um, so there has been very funny reports trying to prove that gaming has negative effect on people but it's like uh you know back in the days like where tvs in korea it was considered as a full box so if you keep watching tv you'll be dumb kind of thing so after that era we've gone through like one of the popular policies were like not popular but like worth mentioning is the shutdown law which kind of banned minors from playing games after 10 p.m. So all the PC bangs do some sort of announcement around like 9.50 that all the minors need to go home. But that shutdown law has been proved ineffective recently, so it's not in effect anymore. And these days, the social perception has changed a lot. And I think one of the reasons why gaming has been sort of demonized was that the emphasis that Korean community has on like the high demands and expectations for academic performance and learning. And gaming, in many ways, have been seen like it was the opposite of education. So a lot of parents who did not have gaming experience did not understand. But nowadays, the younger parents are all from the gaming generation. So the general perception has changed a lot. I was wondering if you could both talk a little bit about your own background in games. I thought Mattia had read that when you were younger, your school encouraged playing video games or computer games. And Yewon, it sounded like in your youth, it was the other way around. So if you could both talk a little bit about your own experiences in gaming. Yeah, I think it's an interesting context to study games in Finland because Finland has been for a long time quite positive in general as a society towards games. Indeed, when I was going to school in the early 90s, we indeed had a lot of educational games and in our university and in Finland in general, we've developed many educational games that are globally now used in education. I can't say much about the effectiveness of those games, but I think it sort of reflects nicely sort of that paradox or that problem. And when it comes to using the term game, 
learning or gaming in these sorts of discussions. So we always end up in that question that what is what is a game and where do the minds go when we try to say or try to understand these sorts of problems. So unlike if we talk about problems related to smoking, we can say, well, nicotine is, is sort of the substance or drinking. We can say alcohol is the substance or coffee, coffee drinking, caffeine is the substance. But when it comes to games, we don't have that sort of game substance. We can say, oh, that's where the game is. But it's just like a very wide variety of different things. And it sort of makes it very fascinating objects of study, especially when we look at those sort of restrictions and encouragements. So when we look at those games being used or applied for these sort of positive or educational purposes, we see them called games, even though if you ask the kids, they might say, well, that's not a real game. Like that's just some sort of a program that is trying to make me learn some stuff. And at the same time, like in China, we saw these major restrictions. So kids are not allowed to play games anymore from Monday to Friday, for instance. And I'm just wondering how do they classify those games? Because I'm assuming the kids are playing a lot of different things on their smartphones and computers, but who is making that decision that which of them are games and which are not. So yeah, an interesting sort of cross-cultural question for sure. Yeah, thank you. Yewon, would you like to speak a little about your own experiences? Yes, I I guess I was in a way lucky that my parents were not very against games. That I guess my parents thought that it was just like MSO's basic era where we didn't really have like Windows OS and there was computer hagwons, which is like after school institutions that you go and spend like an hour or two and learn about computer and I was sent there by my parents. They wanted me to learn how to work with computers. And that's where I actively started to engage with the computer games. And and my parents, like from time to time, they would buy us like uh, game packages. And but we were able to play under their supervision, which later on in my middle school or higher up, I wasn't very proud of myself for playing games. And I wasn't able to tell my parents that I was playing games a lot, but I used to go to PC bangs and which kind of became uh, like neighborhood social activities among my peers. And my special interest in gaming disorder is because several times in my life, I spent like more than 10 hours playing games for maybe two years and I did not feel like it was affecting any of my performance or academic achievements but then that was when my parents and my friends thought that I was addicted to the games and I wasn't I'm still not sure how to understand my experience because I think I'm a special case in a way that I'm a games researcher which kind of yeah, knowing knowledge of game kind of helps me in my professional fields. So that's why I have interest in understanding gaming disorder a bit more. And just to elaborate on the PC Bang, it was from the late 90s to early 2000s, there was a boom of this it's similar to internet PC cafes in the Western world, but it was more focused on playing games, I feel like. And then there were like PC bounds in every neighborhood and you go there and learn from others. And then you also compete there and you also compete with neighborhood PC bounds, which eventually became a, like a stepping stone for esports in Korea. I see. Yeah. 
Thanks so much for bringing that up. You know, I was thinking about these PC cafes and even just the idea of us moving from PCs or even laptops to smartphones and how that really changes the physical space in which you play games. I liked how you mentioned, Yewon, that these PC cafes become these kind of social hubs. And I can completely imagine how that would be. And although maybe people still do gather at such places, there's so much gaming, at least physically on your own, even if you're connected to others virtually. That must be a fascinating change. I was wondering, because you mentioned, Yewon, the number of hours that at certain points in your life you spent playing certain games, and it made me wonder about this kind of quantification. So how can one diagnose gaming disorder? Again, I realize that disorder itself is debated. I understand that you use a certain kind of methodology when you're evaluating this disorder in your project. Can you explain a bit about this methodology? Yeah, well, this is also a very fascinating question. So our goal is, as we talked earlier, is not explicitly to diagnose. So there are, is so far, one diagnostic manual, which has explicit criteria, and we could pick up those criteria and look at whether certain people meet those criteria. Actually, we do this, so we have clinicians who will go through those criteria, but our goal is not to sort of take that and say, well, now there's a problem or now there's a disorder, but rather we want to look at sort of that larger perspective. For instance, we might have two people who both play four hours today. This is sort of a very common and regular thing to do in many countries. So people are playing a lot. But in our pilot research, for instance, we found out that there's a tons of people who play four hours and more every day for several years in a row. And they're having sort of a, according to all different kinds of well-being measures, they're having very good health. And then we have other people who are playing four hours or even less, and they're having very poor well-being or, or health. So it seems like the number of hours that people spend gaming or doing any kind of activity, that's not really sort of the measure for whether there are problems, but it seems like in our current understanding of the problem, people, when they do any kind of activity too much in relation to what their other responsibilities are, so they have sort of a system of values which are important for them. And when those hours that are spent, in this case, gaming, clash with those values. So for instance, you might have a very time-consuming job, might have family with many kids, you might have other responsibilities in your hobbies and social relationships. So if gaming doesn't leave you enough time for those things which are also valuable for you, then you might have this clash. And a lot of people who seem to seek treatment have this sort of situation. But then again, in this other group, when people have arranged their life or are living such life where they do have that time that they wish to use for gaming, gaming is one of those values that are important for them. In these cases, it seems like gaming is just supporting or maintaining that life situation with high well-being. So it's very tricky for diagnosis, and we're really looking forward to better understand this paradox. Yes, thank you for explaining. It makes a lot of sense that, of course, taking a single number from two different individuals doesn't indicate the same thing. As a last question, I would like to ask you both, and I realize this will differ depending on the individual players and especially where they are based, but is there support for an individual who believes that they themselves have a problem or that those around them have an issue with gaming disorder? Yes, in previous studies where they did a meta-analysis of prevalence rate of gaming disorder scales, and Asia was reported to be the highest globally, and especially Korea, it's like, I think it was 6.3% in Asia. Also, it was much higher in males in many research 
like we mentioned before, it could have been overestimated due to the cultural factors and education's importance. But in Korea, gaming disorder is not an official diagnosis, but there is a concept that excessive immersion to gaming, which refers to people who might have a problem with controlling their games and maybe have negative effects due to the gaming activity. So there is a Game Cultural Foundation who's been supporting the general perception of the gaming toward a more positive area. And they run eight locations of game healing centers where they provide like counseling and diagnosis and some sort of like treatment programs or the financial support for the treatment. And each centers have different methodology, but when they first come in, they request for an interview. They do a initial interview to screen and then do like analysis. And then there is a clinical expert assigned to each person. And usually it's the parents who bring their children. So there's also guardian coaching program, which kind of if the children does not have gaming problem, but the guardian thinks that children have gaming problem, that's the where guardian coaching program comes in. And then it helps the educate what game is and why the kids are playing those games. And so they offer various support for those who are in needs. Thank you. Mati, is there other resources that you would like to speak about? Yeah, so in the Finnish context, we have a little bit of different system. We don't have many programs available. A number of them exist. One of them is the Restart program. So that's for adults who feel that gaming is a problem for them. And we have a few hundred people who have applied there in the last couple of years. And it's really good for people who would think. I think at this point, I should highlight that, as we spoke earlier, it's not a matter of having gaming disorder or not. People can have a lot of problems with a lot of different things. And doesn't you don't need a diagnosis to, to seek help or to need help. So, of course, it's very good to have support for all kinds of challenges that manifest in life. So this program is very good for everyone who thinks that they need some help with controlling anything related to their gaming habits. Then we have another program for younger people. I think it's called Tiki Peliraet On in Finnish. And the same thing applies here. Like you don't have to be diagnosed or you don't have to have any major problems to access that. But it can be very helpful just to have a peer community where you can talk about these things and get support for in general your life path. So this is sort of the situation in Finland. We don't have formal clinics for that. Great. Thank you for the emphasis that there doesn't need to be an official diagnosis, but rather these programs can be immensely helpful for individuals who have problems, uh, one of which may be with gaming. This is clearly an evolving field that potentially involves such a large part of the global population. And I'm sure you'll continue to further your research and ultimately help those who feel that they need it. Thank you so much, really, for your time today, Mati and Yewon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Again, that was Veli Mati Karhulahti and Ye Wonjin. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.